The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 14, Green-Eyed Magic, Part 1. object in the sand and typed a command to pick it up and examine it. It is a green box, Moot wrote, ornately carved with copper fixings and hinges. It can be held securely in two hands. In the lid there appears to be an incised square decorated with a picture of a lizard. Two depressions on either side appear thumb-shaped. Lucas placed his thumbs into the depressions. Click! A compartment opens. Inside is a copper key. Yvonne tries the key in the lock of the box, Lucas wrote. Only try? Moot queried. Lucas cursed. <sighs> Yvonne puts the copper key into the lock of the box and turns it. Which way? Moot asked. Counter, he began, then hit delete. Wittershins, Lucas wrote, thinking Moot might appreciate the archaic usage. Yvonne's efforts are rewarded. The box opens easily. Is there an inscription either on the inside or outside of the box? Lucas queried. If there had been one on the outside, it would have been described, Moot said. Well, I've been told, Lucas thought. Yvonne looks for an inscription inside the box. The box appears to have nothing in it, but feels heavier than emptiness would suggest. The inscription reads, That which is unleashed tethers itself to tales waiting to be told. What does that mean? Lucas typed his thoughts, not expecting Moot to illuminate anything. It is for you to discover. Lucas thought he wouldn't risk anything by being direct. What is inside the box? A story. Many stories. Am I to tell them? Yes, or they will tell you, or yours. Can I learn them first? How do I prepare? You know them. You have them. You are them. You are the key. For another, they would be different. Growth, death, change, eternity. In some way, all are green, Moot wrote. Like grass, Yvonne wonders? Like emeralds, Lucas asked himself, hoping to steer his fortunes more towards treasure than toxin. Green had never been his color. He shivered again at the thought of the Rusalka and wondered whether the text-based tide was rolling in. He imagined stormy green waves. He prepared to sign off. The box was added to his inventory without his command. Like verdigree, Moot said, and Lucas was alone. He logged out and stared at his phone. As he exited the app, 
he saw a slow green glow fade away, like the monochrome shift in very old computer monitors. He shook his phone as if to clear it. Hey, mate, you dropped this, a youth said, suddenly passing him by in a group of about a dozen. Their footfalls made very little sound, despite the fact that most were wearing heavy boots. More like the sound of key clicks than walking. Lucas remarked this feature of their footwear because, despite his usual quick wariness, he found it hard to look up. Then he couldn't look away. Nice piece, very steampunk, the young man said. He handed Lucas an ornate copper key. His eyes were the same digital green as the strange fading glow from Lucas's phone screen, and in their depths, Lucas saw cascading characters and dragon scales. Lucas took the key. It was a beautiful thing, heavy and smooth, with a coiled lizard as the head. It was covered in a patina that marked his hand as if with tiny greenish tears. Lucas hadn't heard the key drop, and he would have felt both a weight in his pocket and its sudden absence if that had happened. He was certain. He looked up from the key, unsure whether to thank his benefactor or protest that there had been some mistake and hand the key back. He saw the group walking away from him. The one who had given him the key smiled at him and turned away. Lucas saw a coppery plait going down the lad's back, braided in an old-fashioned feminine style, like pictures he had seen of Russian princesses. The plait was stiff and shone with interwoven strands of red and green. The tail of the braid ended in a lizard's head. The head rose. The eyes blinked slowly and looked at Lucas, a small green tongue darting out like a poisonous flame. Then the group of young men disappeared. All at once, Lucas knew what tales he had to tell. Mara signed on when she was sure the others were gone. Does the pilot have the key? she asked. Yes. Good, she thought to herself. Hopefully it will unlock more than he can handle. She had the exultant feeling of holding the world in her hand. Then she felt the unnerving sensation of it slipping through her fingers like sand. Greenish sand. Well, the last story had been told on a beach after all, and text was only so descriptive. Oh, yes. So descriptive, Moot said to itself. The following week, everyone signed on at almost the same time. No description was available for their surroundings. Lucas hadn't been able to sign on early and prepare anything. But, as Moot had said, Ivan was the key. Lucas began. Ivan greets his listeners warmly, moves forward, and pulls a large copper key out of his pocket. It glows with a green light, Moot said. The light illuminates a copper-colored door with a large carved handle and an oversized elaborate lock. Many tumblers can be faintly seen inside the lock, writhing like ancient reptiles. Charming, said Jack. Fabulous, Isabel enthused, wishing she could take notes. What era? The lock grows to accommodate the life forms within. The key does likewise, Moot said. Lucas swallowed. 
the beasts weren't water-dwelling or even particularly amphibian-sounding. There had been no description of water. Earth, even hell, he could handle. Here goes nothing, he thought. Yvonne jumps up and forward, feet first. He puts his arms above his head and assumes the shape of the key, entering the lock and twisting to the left. Lucas waited, his heart thudding in his chest. Getting stuck now, like this, would be really embarrassing. All the creatures inside the lock stiffen into static tumblers which roll over each other in sequence, Moot said. There is a cavernous click and the door swings open, revealing a small factory with a long hall full of curious, unique inventions in various stages of creation. Individual artisans are working at stations as if at their own studios. Guys, take a look around. Don't obviously steal anything, but if you see any useful castoffs or factory seconds lying about, see if you can collect them, Lucas advised into the private channel. Waste not, want not, Isabel agreed, slightly disappointed that she had no creatures to observe, at least not yet. Jack found the setting more than a little odd, not least because its production model was unlike any industrial factory he'd ever heard of. Individuals making one-of-a-kind things, in quantity, but none that could be quality controlled for accurate replication. This was a new way of doing things for sure, or a very, very old one. But if everyone was an original creator, why the factory setting? unless Moot just called it that, and in reality it was something else. A market? There was a feeling of busy isolation, as if none of the creators was aware of anyone else. Nothing was exchanged or shared. Everyone worked as if at the center of a small universe. He shared the feeling with Lucas and Isabel. Ask for a description as you back slowly away. Move your head back, still taking in as much of the factory floor as you can, but unfocus your eyes on the story world a little, Lucas said. The others did so, and they both saw what Lucas did. All the studios were gears, as if in a big clock, but a clock that told all the time, space, and stories in all the worlds. Yvonne continued his story, Lucas went on. Once there was a young man who was very clever and quick with his hands. He didn't want to become a miner like his father or a farmer like his uncle. His father decided to apprentice him to a clockmaker and he soon became very skilled and made timepieces that were absolutely exquisite and of greater precision and finer quality than those of his master. In fact, his clocks fetched such high prices and made so much money that his master was afraid to lose the lad and decided to try and find a way not to release him from his apprenticeship. Originally, he promised the boy could go home after three years. He kept his word, but when the day came for the boy to go home, his master said, we have a big order from the palace. You have three hours and three minutes to see your parents. Enjoy your visit, but get back on time or it will be the worse for you. 
The lad was dismayed. He lived hundreds of miles away. It would take him days to get home by the means he could afford, never mind hours. He made a clock for his parents. It was an exquisite thing, shaped like a traditional Russian stove with a miniature depiction of hell in the fires at the bottom and heaven at the top, all worked in fine clockwork automata in addition to the face of the clock, which took up most of the center. The apprentice wasn't paid well, and he couldn't send much money home. Much as he would love to know they gave his handiwork pride of place in their home, he secretly hoped that his parents would sell his gift to make their day-to-day -day lives easier. The boy felt betrayed by the clockmaker. You can go to the devil, he thought, as he absentmindedly wound the mechanism. Suddenly, he was home. His father started up from his chair beside the fire where he had been dozing, and his mother covered her face with her apron and ran away, locking herself in the bathhouse. When their son finally convinced them it was really him and not a ghost, they both embraced him and wept for joy. They accepted the beautiful clock with gasps of amazement, watching time tick by. Once it was put up, they could barely take their eyes off it, let alone ever think of selling it. At first, the boy had visions of his parents wasting away after he left, staring at his wonderful gift. But the lad found that, with careful winding, his clock could control time in certain ways, or at least influence the perception of its passing. Three hours went by as three weeks. But go by it did, until finally there was but three real minutes left. As he was packing the last of his things and saying his goodbyes, the lad recalled wishing his master would go to the devil. He heard a tiny, tormented scream from the clock, coming from the scenes of fiery damnation depicted along the bottom of the stove. It seems that's exactly what happened. While his parents' attention was turned to something else, the lad jumped into the clock with less than a minute to spare. The master was being tortured by demons for his wickedness, even while he lived, thanks to the lad's wish. This is your doing, the master shrieked, then whimpered. Go further into the underworld and take the box you find on the royal throne. We will copy its wonderful design and use it for even more magical creations. Please, as fast as you can, help me, please. The lad suspected this was a ruse. Regardless of his apparent torment, his wicked master was telling him to go into the depths of hell and steal heaven knows what from the devil himself. But he was an apprentice, and so he had no choice in the matter. His master's captors temporarily released him, and he and the boy went to the edge of the entrance level of hell. They looked over the precipice into the infernal abyss. It was a long way down, but the royal court was down there. Together, they tied some strips of hide. The boy shuddered to think whose it had been. Together into a strong rope, and they fixed a bell, such as the kind that tolls for hapless sinners to the end. The boy was to ring the bell once he had the box so that his master could haul him back up. Inch by infernal inch, the boy was lowered down to the main chambers of the devil's palace. When he got there, he found a room full of some twenty men. They hailed him and bowed. 
calling him by name as if they had been waiting for his arrival. Somewhat shocked by this reception, the lad passed quickly into a second room and was greeted in like manner by nearly twenty women. He passed into a third room, saw the box on the royal throne, and took it. It was green, not overly large or heavy, and beautifully made. Thinking the men and women in the other rooms were former apprentices that the master had compelled on this errand before, the boy led them all to the leather rope and rang the bell. One by one, the master pulled them all up, thinking that with each new arrival he would obtain the box. When he saw this wasn't likely to happen, he gave up and the boy was left stranded in hell, looking for a way out before the devil discovered the theft. He shook the box and... Lucas was going to leave things on a cliffhanger. He pressed the hot key. The decameron shuffled and hung. Impatiently, Lucas shook his phone again. The twelve young men appeared again in front of him in real life, in real time. The one who had handed him the key transformed before his eyes into a beautiful young woman dressed in ancient robes made of overlapping plates of burnished and oxidized copper, her costume winking red and green like silken metallic scales. The figure held up a green glowing card that was slowly disappearing as she was, along with the rest of her companions. This is yours. In the blink of an eye, a deed is done. Longer yet, the tale is spun, she said softly, fading away. Seven of diamonds. He was to continue the tale. Lucas rubbed his eyes and looked to see if the others had left him any messages. As he signed in again, in the seconds of mirrored darkness before the app launched, Lucas saw his reflection. His normally large, dark eyes had a definite greenish glow. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.